Um, I have been fascinated with the book of Exodus for a long time, primarily because of the way that it teaches us about the heart and the character of God, who he is, as God begins to reveal himself to his people. And what the book of Exodus is, it is a historical account of how God delivered his people, some two million of those people from slavery into salvation. It's a story about how God raises up a savior, if you will, to help lead his people and to call them into the land of Cana. And there are so many things that take place in the midst of this book. Uh, This week uh, in our newsletter, I'm going to link several books that if you want to read alongside me, that will help sort of inform your understanding. They they deal with the book of Exodus on a, a biblical theological level, and they'll sort of describe some of the motifs and some of the themes that we're going to see throughout the book this semester. We have a lot of uh, verses to sort of go through today, and so uh, we're going to read quite a bit. But in general, what I want to say to you that I think that the book of Exodus chapter 1 in, in primarily that it teaches is a simple truth that I think we need to remember today. And the truth is this, that God has a good plan, that he has a plan And he's working the plan. He's devising the plan. He's initiating the circumstances, not just for all of his people, but individually for you and I as well. There's a plan, and that plan, though you may not be able to see it, it's a good plan. It's a perfect plan. Oftentimes, the older I get, oftentimes I will find myself, if I'm honest with you, disagreeing with how God goes about his business sometimes. And I think to myself, if I was God, which thank the Lord I'm not, I would probably go about doing something in a, in a little bit different way. Because I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy long periods of, of suffering or persecution. I don't enjoy long seasons of, of trials and, and tribulation or feeling distant relationally from people or even distant relationally from God. I don't enjoy those things. But yet, even in the midst of those hard times, God is working his plan, his good plan. And oftentimes what we see with the Lord is that he brings about his plan in ways that we don't necessarily agree with or ways that we would have chosen to go about it. And I want to show you that here in the book of Exodus. We're going to pick up in verse 1. And the word of the Lord says to us, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers and all that generation, they perished. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, to understand what's happening in these first seven verses, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I get to places that talk about genealogy in the Bible, I will just simply just blow past it as quickly as I can. I'll skim over it. I'll skip the names. Usually the first thing that comes to my mind is, why would you name your son Gad? Who thought of the word Naphtali? Even Simeon or Reuben, he was named after the Reuben sandwich. I don't know. These are just weird, strange names that we find in the Bible. And the tendency is just to skip over it. But to understand the significance of what's happening in verses 1 through 7, I want to take us back just a little bit in the book of Genesis. 
You see, the grander story of of God's story of redemption for his people, it really begins in Genesis chapter 3. And this is the story of when we fall, and it's the story of when God begins to speak to the serpent after Adam and Eve have fallen, and he gives really one of the first hopeful scriptures that God is going to redeem what has just taken place in the garden with Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, one day he is going to crush and strike your head, yet you will bruise his heel. Meaning one day Christ is going to die for the sins of the world, but Christ is going to defeat sin, death, and evil. And though his heel will be bruised, he will defeat and crush your head to the serpent. You fast forward to Genesis chapter 6 and you see that God grows tired and, and weary with the descendants of the earth. And so he speaks to Noah and he says, Noah, build the ark. I'm going to flood the earth and I'm going to wipe out all of this evil and all of this wicked. And so you know the story of Noah. He builds the ark and then the earth floods and then the waters subside. And then in Genesis chapter 8, God gives a promise to Noah and he says, I will never, ever do this again. I'll never flood the earth again. Go forth and multiply and and create offspring and descendants and I will bless you all the days of Noahic covenant in chapter eight. And he gives the rainbow as the promise that he will never flood it again. And then Genesis chapter 12 comes in and the call of Abram that later became Abraham and God tells him to go forth into the land that I've promised you. And and Abram goes and he becomes Abraham and, and he gives birth to Isaac and then he gives birth to Jacob. And so the grandson of the father of the Jews, Father Abraham, now we pick up with his story and we see him mentioned here in Exodus 1. But but before we get to Exodus 1, I want to take you back to a dream and a vision where Jacob is not in the land of Egypt yet. And in Genesis chapter 46, here's where God speaks and here's how the people of God end up in Egypt. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am, Lord. Then he said, I am God. I'm the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you into Egypt. Now I believe with all my heart because God is sovereign and he doesn't see time linear the way that we do and seeing what's happening. God makes this promise to Jacob and he says, go down to Egypt and I'm going to be with you. And God knew well in advance what was going to happen to the people of God when they went down to Egypt. He knew that soon after this moment, when Jacob arrives there with all of his sons and, and Joseph is there, and you remember that story from one of our Advent series, and our sermons, and you remember that story of Joseph who was sold into slavery and eventually he redeems his brothers and he redeems his, his dad and comes alongside and he brings them in and he takes care of them. God knew when he tells Jacob in this moment that soon after that, for, for generations, 430 years, the people of God, the Jews or the Hebrews were going to be held in bondage and in slavery by Pharaoh. Remember I said in the beginning, God always has a plan and God's plan is always good. And those things are easy to say that God has a plan, that his plan is always good when our life is going well. 
It's easy to say God's plan is good and his plan is always perfect and, and right and he knows what he's doing when we don't have any calamity or turmoil or issues within our own life, when we don't have disease and, and death and we don't see our friends and family hospitalized and we don't see suffering and, and heartache and sorrow. It's easy to say God has a plan when things are good. It's more difficult to say that when we know that things are bad. And yet here in this moment, God raises up Jacob's family and he sends all 12 of the brothers, Joseph already there, him being the 12th, 11 of the other brothers. And notice what it says in verse five. And all the descendants of Jacob were how many? 70. 70 is what remained. 70 is what God brings down into Egypt. Such a small number of people, the remnant that remains. And yet we remember in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 8 and in Genesis 3, this promise for God to bless his people and to multiply them. He tells Abram that I, your, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars. Okay, God, but now we're down to 70. And you made a promise to him. And yet in this moment, his grandson is here with, with his great-grandsons, and there are 70 of them who remained and went to Egypt. You see, God oftentimes takes his people into difficult places. He oftentimes wounds us and allows us to endure suffering for, for, to execute his plan. If his plan is good, sometimes that plan includes the fact that we have to go through difficult times and hard times. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us and it doesn't mean that God doesn't care for us, but, but somewhere along the lines, we begin to gain perspective on what it is and why we suffered the way that we suffered. Just recently, Haley and I were talking about perspective in the context of just being married. We graduated from college uh, at 22 years old, and we got married as quickly as we could as soon as we graduated. At 22 years old, we got married, and at least I, I won't speak for Haley, but I thought at the time at 22 years old that I knew everything there was to know about marriage and that I knew everything that I needed to know about my wife. My bride of 17 years plus today, and the older I get with her and the more we grow old, the more I realize how much I do know her, but how much I still don't know her fully. My perspective 17 and a half years later down the road is that at 22 years old, I didn't know a whole lot of anything, but it took time. And it took seasons and, and, it, and it took places in my life to, to bring me to that perspective that, that my perspective has changed on, on her and, and how I would view marriage and, and the time coming away from that. And oftentimes that's what God does is he gives us perspective down the road, even when we can't see it in the midst of it. And the questions of why and, and how, those become settled within our hearts. And we even become, the older we get, okay with, with not knowing the why and even not knowing the how. But we trust him and we move forward. But then the text continues to go along. And so he says, they filled this land with all of these Israelites. And verse 8 picks up and it says, now the scene changes. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. 
Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and they fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. All of a sudden, the changing of a guard, Joseph and the Hebrews no longer have favor with the Pharaoh. All of a sudden, these Hebrews are viewed as a threat. They're a subset of the population. And so Pharaoh begins to, to be fearful of this group. They will raise up. They'll rise up against us. And so there's too many of them. And so we're going to start shackling them with chains and with bondage. And we're going to hold them down and we're going to control them as best that we can so that they do not undermine our kingdom. Now, the part that follows is one of the most horrific genocidal passages in all of the Bible. Oftentimes I think about this idea when we come to Sunday school and if you grew up in church and you were young and you were old enough to remember the days of the flannel boards and they would put the, the characters up there and, and they would talk about them in these sort of idyllic senses and how wonderful it all was. And yet the older we get and the more mature we get in our understanding of reading scripture, we realize that many of those stories are not PG rated for Sunday school if we were to treat them and read them as they literally are. And so what begins to happen here is Pharaoh begins to oppress the people. He begins to do something and ask something of, of other people that is absolutely horrific and is just simply genocide. Pick up with me in verse 15. He says, And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shephira and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birthstool, if it is a son... You kill him. If it's a daughter, you let her live. But instead, verse 17, the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and he said to them, why have you done this and, and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and they grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all of his people at this point, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but every daughter you shall let live. Every son born will die of the Hebrews. One of the reasons why I love my church is I love being here on Sunday mornings and I love walking through halls of the children's building and the preschool building and our student building. And I love hearing the, the laughter. I love hearing the, the running. I love to see our kids here making noises. I, 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 you may find this annoying, but I love crying babies in a worship service. And the reason why that is, is because we, Haley and I have served at a church, uh, one of our very first ministry assignments ever. And the first Sunday we get there and there are hardly no children. There are no babies. There were three youth. 
And we cried out to God for crying babies to come to our church. And what those crying babies symbolize, what those children symbolize, what those students symbolize, what those college students symbolize is a church that is alive. It's a church that's not dead. And so we thank God for the the crying babies. We thank God for the children running around our pews and in our sanctuary and up and down our halls. We thank God every day for those things. But can you imagine just for a moment being a Hebrew, sitting in church on a Sunday morning, and some Pharaoh makes this edict and he says, all of the firstborn sons shall die. And so what we're going to do is we're going to show up on a Sunday morning and we're going to go to that preschool, that children's building, and we're going to take all the firstborn children and we're going to go drown them in the Trinity River. Because they're not worthy of life. And they're a threat to my kingdom. And so we take their life. Now, if you're a girl, you may be thinking, well, well, this is great for me because I get to live, but I've got bad news for you too. You're still a Hebrew and you're still a slave. You're still just property. And a, you're not a human being. You're, you're just below what it means to be human. And so Old Testament scholars who have dug into this, they say these little girls that Pharaoh would have kept, and many boys did drown in the Nile River, but these girls were often trafficked later on. They were sold for goods and they were sold for services under the hand of Pharaoh. And so your fate wouldn't have been much better. But this was God's people. They endured this for 430 years. Generations who knew nothing but what it was like to live under the confines of slavery and bondage and having no rights and possessions and no things. Nothing was theirs. Everything was his. And they were obligated to do everything that he told them to do. And he tells these midwives and he begins to tell his people. I want you to notice a couple of things about how Pharaoh leads in the very beginning because I think there's some some things that are analogous here today in 2022. But notice when the scripture begins to talk, he says in verse 9, Pharaoh says, behold, the people of Israel are too many and they are too mighty for us. So what Pharaoh begins to do in this moment is he begins to lead from two positions. Number one, he leads from a position of insecurity. And we know he's insecure because the way in which he leads is he sows seeds of fear in the hearts of his people. That these Hebrews are so many, they will undermine your way of life, your well-being. Imagine this for a moment, taking a subset group of people within a population and saying they will cause our downfall if not handled. And so the scripture says, we, the Pharaoh says in the scriptures, we will deal with them therefore shrewdly clothed in fear, clothed in insecurity. And this shrewdness that Pharaoh begins to paint and whispers to his people, it eventually leads to the fact that Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they do begin to oppress the Hebrews. And they begin to rule over them. And that oppression ultimately leads to slavery. Where you're less than human, 
No rights, no possessions, no hope, no future. All you do is get up and work and do what we say and go to bed. And you pray that in God's mercy, you're not picked upon and executed unjustly or unfairly in any way. And that slavery, ultimately, to guard Pharaoh's kingdom, it led to these secret conversations that he began to have. And the secret conversations in this moment were the conversations that he's having with the midwives. So we're going to control the conversation. We're going to control the people. And then we're going to begin to whisper in secret. And we're going to begin to give these midwives instructions on population control because that's essentially what this was. They were a threat to his kingdom. These little boys grow up to be men who hold swords and can fight against us. And we can't have that. Why? Because there are too many of them. Remember in those first couple of verses, Jacob's sons show up. How many people did it say got to, to Egypt? Seventy. Seventy people started it all off. The promise in Genesis 12 for Abraham's descendants to be more numerous than the stars. All of a sudden, in this moment, every time the Pharaoh oppresses the people of God, they multiply and they grow bigger. Every time he persecutes them, they, they grow and they multiply. And he, and he doesn't realize that as he puts a literal noose around their neck to strangle them and to drown them, there is a spiritual noose being tied around his neck and the grip of God is getting tighter and tighter and tighter around Pharaoh. And he has no idea. And so the story continues and it says that Pharaoh calls out these two midwives and he gives this, these instructions. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things on the latter half of the narrative. Number one, can we just say that as we read verse 12 again, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. This is a reminder to us emphatically that God is always working behind the scenes in our lives. They're oppressed by a dictator, and yet they multiply and they grow. Who but God would do something like that? Who but God, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of turmoil amongst his people, would continue to go about and continue to work his plan? Remember I said in the beginning, God always has a plan, and the plan is always good. It's always good. And so even as the people of God are oppressed by the Pharaoh, even as the people of God experience calamity and, and slavery and oppression, even as the people of God are connived against and, and schemed against by the Pharaoh to limit their population, to control them in every which way, God is still working behind the scenes, executing his plan in his timing and in his way. But number two, I want you to see then in verses 15 through 22, we get this picture that oftentimes we see that God reveals his glory through the weak and the mistreated in this world. Can I tell you this this morning, and I mean this with all my heart, God is not looking this morning for the strong in this room. He's not looking for the strong. He's looking for the weak. He's looking for the humble. He's not looking for the proud, 
for those who would be confident in their own ability and their talent and their time and in their intellect. He's not looking for those people. Do you know this morning that, that God doesn't care about your vocation? He doesn't care about your education. He doesn't care on how big your house is or what kind of cars you drive or how much money is in your bank account. He is keenly aware of those things, but that is not the thing that primarily concerns him. What God is looking for is a group of men and women whose hearts are tender towards him. He's looking for a group of, of men and women that are going to use the things that he's given, the, the homes and the cars and the finances and the jobs and the vocations and the families who are going to use those things and steward them in such a way that we can see his kingdom on this earth grow as it is in heaven. He's looking for a group of people whose hearts are in tune with, with what his word says. They want to be on mission with him and walk with him and alongside him and would say, God, would you lead me today to live on mission with you? He's looking for the mistreated and the, and the weak and the meek in spirit who would say, God, I am nothing without you. That I'm incapable of any good without you working that goodness out in my life. That I'm incapable of, of establishing my own purpose and naming my own purpose and, and figuring out my calling apart from you working in my life and speaking to me and teaching me how it is that I would live on mission. Why? Because I believe, God, that you have a plan. And I believe your plan for my life is good. No matter what I experience, no matter what hardship, no matter what heartache, your plan is good. And I believe that. God uses the, the meek and the mild. He uses the humble and the mistreated to bring about his purposes. He uses these ladies in verse 15, Sifra and Pua and these midwives. Can you imagine the audacity of these two women here for a moment? to imagine them standing up to the most powerful person in the known world at this time. No greater king had existed before Pharaoh at this moment. And Pharaoh, at the snap of his fingers, without cause, could take their life at any given moment. He could, you could be annoy the Pharaoh. There are stories in, in our history books of, of just someone just sort of getting on the Pharaoh's nerves and, and he would have them put to death. Can you imagine the most powerful man in the world? And yet in Exodus 1, we have a picture of two midwives who stood up to the most powerful man in the world. Why? Because it said they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. One theologian described it this way. He said, if you would imagine just for a moment, if we were to create a chart of attributes of men and attributes of women, and we begin to describe how men generally are, how we think about men and how they should act and how, how women should act. And, and if we were to do this exercise this morning, uh, nine times out of 10, if we started with the men, we would say men should be courageous. They should lead. They provide. They, they, maybe they're compassionate a little bit, but, but, but these are the things that men do. And, and, and when we describe women, we describe them in other terms that are, that are not masculine in any given way. They should be kind and, and sweet and sensitive. But yet in this moment, in Exodus 1, 
We don't see a kind and a, and a sweet, sensitive woman, though they, they probably were very kind and, and sweet and, and sensitive women. But instead, I think in this moment, what we see in this moment is courage. We see grit. We see determination. We see a sense of fearlessness before the, the most powerful man in the world, that they would defy the thing that he has told them to do. This was a group of ladies. Women, if, if you would ever hear or believe the lie that you are not supposed to be courageous and determined and gritty and tough, do not believe that. Men, you should as well be inspired by what these two women have done and all of these midwives that exist here in this moment that defied the order of the Pharaoh. Why? The answer to that is in verse 17. Because the midwives feared God. They feared him more than they feared man. We have this saying in our house, and we have this on signs and, and banners. And the saying just goes like this. One of them's in my office. One of them's in my living room. Do right and fear no man. Just do right. Do what is right always and fear no man. Why? Because no man is worthy of my fear. When I do right and do what God has called me to do, and these midwives did what was right and did what God had called them to do, why? Because they feared God more than they feared the power of the Pharaoh who could even take their life. They did right instead of compromising what it is that they believed and knowing that it was wrong and evil to do what it was that the Pharaoh was asking. And this leads to the third and final point this morning. It's simply this. Our fears must be appropriately placed on the only one who is worthy of them. Now, I want to explain this in this way to you because what I'm saying this morning, I don't want you to misunderstand me. When we talk about a fear of God and a healthy fear of God, for those of us that are in Christ, who have given our lives to Christ, who have called upon his name to save us, let me just say this over and over and over again to you. God is not angry with you today. God is not upset with you today. In fact, the Bible says that the wrath of God has been satisfied on his son, Jesus. And so oftentimes when we go through periods of heartache and turmoil, we begin to believe the lie that somehow God is punishing us and he's mad at us and he's angry with us. Listen, when God disciplines us, when God allows us to be wounded in some way to experience some sort of heartache and calamity, it is not punitive because the scripture is clear. God's wrath has been satisfied fully on his son, Jesus. <coughs> and so when we experience turmoil and suffering and heartache, it's not God being punitive and saying, this is what you deserve. He knows what we deserve, but rather he brings us to these places where he disciplines us to bring us back to him. It's a loving thing when our father disciplines us to bring us back to him. If you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers, Joseph's brothers needed some disciplining. They just they needed a whooping and a spanking, if, you, if you're being honest. 
what they did to Joseph and selling him in, and yet it comes back full circle in Exodus 1 where all the brothers come after God had chastised them and disciplined them, and he brings them back, and he reminds them of that promise, you 70. And we know through the biblical account later on in Exodus chapter 12, we're going to see as God begins to set his people free, it's going to list the number of about 600,000 Hebrews that God delivers from slavery. Now, we know that the actual number, conservative estimates of the people that God delivered was close to two to two and a half million people. And you say, well, Drew, how do you get from 600,000 in the Exodus 12 account to two and a half to three million, even in some cases, because those 600,000 people that were counted were just the men. The women and children weren't counted in the census. You weren't worthy enough yet. It wasn't 2022 yet, so you, did, you got overlooked. And so this 600,000 is plus the wives that were married to the men and plus the children. And we remember that they multiplied greatly and grew so numerous, they became a threat to Pharaoh's kingdom. And so most scholars would say that the delivering of the Hebrews out of the land of Egypt was over 2 million people. You remember it started with how many? 70. 70 to 2. God has a plan. And his plan is always good. It was good for the Hebrews. And that plan is still good over your life. I don't know if many of you, I don't know what your circumstance is, where you are. I don't know all your heartache, all your turmoil, all your controversy, all your worry and doubt. I don't know. I'm not aware of those things. But I know that God knows. And here's my challenge to you this morning as we end. See, I think we are like the Egyptian people in this text. We want to think of ourselves as the midwives, but we're not quite there yet. We're more of the Egyptian people. And see, the Egyptian people cowered in fear at the Pharaoh. And they feared the Pharaoh more than they feared God. I don't know the Pharaohs in your life. I don't know what they are and what you fear more, but can we begin to enter into a posture as a church where we would say, as the midwives did, but we fear God more. And so whatever doubt and uncertainty exists in your home and in your heart, at your school, in your workplace, in your friend circles, in your home groups, whatever doubt is there, whatever fear is there, let it be said of us that we fear God more than we fear the Pharaoh. Pray with me. But Father, we ask that you would humble our hearts. Father, we ask that you would, there would be no proud person in this building. Father, I pray that we would be like these midwives who chose to fear you over the reality of their circumstances, over the reality of one ruler that chose to fear you instead. So would you help us as a people conquer our fears, not in of our own self, but Father, because you are working in us and through us and your spirit accomplishes those things. Father, would you use the meek and the mild in this room to shame the proud and the wise for the cross is foolishness to the outside world. So Father, we pray you'd help us respond in these moments. We pray in Christ's name.